people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What My Name Is Sam. I don't know if you can hear. There's a kind of a random banging in the background. There's some building work going on out immediately outside my house, but uh, we'll try and keep that to a minimum, or I will. Yeah, at least edit it out later. We're here with Ronian Modon, uh, who wrote with reaction, who wrote with Aaron Winter, Reactionary Democracy, uh, which is a really, really good book uh, explaining the relationship between different forms of liberal racism and illiberal racism, and the kind of tensions between them, the dynamics between them, and really, I think, actually offering quite a provocative analysis for anti-fascists about where we should be focusing our energies on the extreme fringe or on, in some ways, the, the normal quotidian racisms that structure society, that organise um, society at a large scale uh, and that affect, you know, very directly hundreds of millions of, of people around the world. Today, we're talking, of course, what else about the situation in France. Um, perhaps you could just begin by telling us in your, in your own words, like, what do you think happened in France? What's the main story here? What are some of the main dynamics that are important to keep in mind when we're thinking about the analysis of this particular situation? Uh, obviously, everyone knows the headlines, right? Everyone is aware by now Le Pen lost to Macron in the second round, you know, having just edged out uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon in the, in the, in the, in the first round. Um, Zemmour, who was kind of, I think, uh, put forward as a, as a kind of a resurgence of the right, actually did quite badly, got about 7% in the first round, um, obviously didn't make it through to the second round. If you're not aware... I'm sure you are, but if you're not aware, uh, the French presidential system has like a two round, two round system. First round, all the candidates are there. Second round, just the top two candidates. So that's the reason why it's just Le Pen and um, Macron in the second round. But yes, um, sorry, go ahead. T- tell us what you think of the main dynamics we need to be keeping in mind and thinking about this event and what's just happened. Well, I think really to me the main kind of uh, the main thing that we need to really. Uh, retain from from this election is that even though it was incredibly shocking, it was not surprising at all, right? It was all very easy to plan, and you know I don't want to kind of toot my own horn because I don't like making predictions. But I had I had said actually, um, and, and it, ended up being, it ended up being published, even though it was a kind of I said I gave that prediction as a bit of a kind of like offhand comment, which I didn't think would end up being published anywhere. But I had said that um, Macron would win by about five million votes. Uh, after the first round, um, and then I got quite worried when I saw it published because I'm like, well, "What if I'm really wrong? And what if Le Pen wins?" <laughs> but it, you know, it was quite interesting in a way because I think it speaks to the reaction that people had when they saw the results of the first round, and everyone panicked, as as did I, to be honest. Even though when I kind of turned to cold-headed analysis, which is what you know we should be doing as academics and as you know as as, as journalists, as as people who have access to shaping public discourse. What, when I tried to kind of have a cold-headed, cold-headed analysis, it was clear mathematically and based on previous elections, based on the kind of like opinion polls and all of these kind of things, that Macron would be winning comfortably. Not quite as comfortably as he did in 2017, right? In 2017, he won by about 10 million votes. Uh, but, you know, it would have taken an incredible earthquake for Le Pen to catch up, you know, like 10 million votes. So even if, if Macron did incredibly poorly, which he did, you know, getting about, you know, 18 million votes still, uh, you know, it would have, like Le Pen would have needed to almost double her vote to win, which, you know, she does not have these reserves, despite the mainstreaming of the far right that has been occurring over, over decades in France. So even though it was shocking and I was really scared till the last minute uh, that she might win, even though it, it seemed completely impossible, um, there, there was no surprise. In fact, the results were pretty much exactly what anyone could have planned 
you know, if if we had looked at it again uh, in a cold-headed manner, which is always difficult, of course, when we talk about the far-right fascism, racism, and, and and all of these movements. So I think to me that that is the real news. And what's what's interesting about that news is that we've been there before in France. You know, in two thousand and two. <clears throat> Jean-Marie Le Pen, the Marine Le Pen's father, uh, Holocaust denier, uh, supporter of the Vichy regime, uh, hardcore fascist, uh, who had who had created, who was the first president of the Front National because he was seen as moderate compared to the other people who were part of that kind of uh, movement at the time, which really says something. Uh, got to the second round of a presidential election in 2002. And again, we had this panicked reaction, this kind of moral panic around that saying, you know, fascism is at the gate. Uh, you know, we need to we need to all bend against fascism and vote for Jacques Chirac, who at the time was less than popular. In fact, he was the least popular uh, candidate uh, to get to the second round and to be elected president of a, of a French Fifth Republic uh, at the time. And he was also embroiled in bias corruption scandals and things like that. But everyone was like, we need to vote for for Jacques Chirac. In fact, there's only one party, which was Lutourier, the Trotskyist uh, workers' struggle, who said to abstain. All the others, even the the League Communist, uh, League Communist Revolutionary, the Revolutionary Communist League said, we need to vote for Chirac, save the Republic. The newspapers, left, right and center, were saying, let's vote for Chirac, you know, otherwise it's the end of democracy. What we didn't see then, and what we didn't talk about then, was that actually Jean-Marie Le Pen was stagnating. He was not gaining votes, whether from 1995 or from 1988. So in the presidential elections in 1988, he got about around 11% of a registered vote. It got about the same in 1995 and the same in 2002. So how does it get to the second round, even though he finished quite far off in 98 uh, and, and in 88 and in 95? Well, he got to the second round not because he was more popular, but because the mainstream parties completely collapsed because people didn't trust them anymore. They were coming out of a coalition. It was the, the moment of convergence, of course, you know, between left and right. There was no no more real difference and they were not really responding to kind of what, what the people wanted. And so there was this kind of split between smaller parties and there was also a massive rise in abstention. And at the time, abstention in France in 2002 actually got as many votes, and, and I'm doing like a quotation marks there, got as many votes as, as the mainstream parties that had been leading the French Republic for years and years and years. And this we didn't talk about. Instead, what we ended up talking about and what we've talked about in France for 20 years is the far right. The far right as the alternative, the far right, the irresist irresistible rise of the far right, uh, people being more and more anti-immigration, anti-Islam and all of that, playing into the hands of the far right, normalizing it, reinforcing its legitimacy against a system that doesn't work anymore, that doesn't respond to the crisis that many French people are facing and beyond as well. Uh, and, 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 and that culminates in 2022 when Marine Le Pen becomes ever more mainstream. And in fact, we have, as you said, we have a candidate that is even more right-wing than she is, uh, still gaining 7% of the vote, which is very low compared to how he polled, but incredibly high considering how racist, sexist and homophobic uh, he is. Listeners can listen back to our uh, interview with Werner about Zemmour, uh, which we did before the election. And I think maybe it was indicative of our fears about him at the time that we focus on him and not Le Pen. Um, but we're, we're making up for that now. In the aftermath of the election, Macron has talked about unifying France. I think there's a recognition on his part that he is in a weaker position than he, what he was to, in 2017. But of course, unifying France um, means a lot of different things and, and, and can be like an, it could be an incredibly awful thing. Um, what do you think Macron's project is going to be to, like he says, unify France? Well, this is, this is a very problematic 
term, I think, you know, unifying, we heard also the term pacifying. And to me, that, that reminds me almost of Biden's reaction after he was elected, you know, and he was talking about kind of reconciliation. Uh, and, you know, we're talking about unifying France, but France is incredibly divided at the moment. It's divided into three different poles, right? We have, of course, the far and extreme right on one hand with Le Pen, Zemmour and, and co. Then we have uh, we have Macron, which is a mishmash of kind of center-right right-wing policies, pretending to be a bit more progressive, but really isn't, if we look at his record in the past five years. And then you have a kind of more radical left with Mélenchon, which again is split and all that, and it's really hard to know exactly who voted for Mélenchon because they believed in his program or because they felt he was the most likely to kind of get through on the left. But, but nonetheless, I think we have three really big polls in France that have, from my point of view, irreconcilable um, differences. And I don't think we should necessarily, I don't think democracy is about actually reconciling all these differences. I think democracy is about having debates, right? And also, I don't think we should reconcile ourselves with the far right. You know, that's where Biden, I think, from, from the get-go uh, really messed up. You know, when he was talking about reconciling, you know, the U.S. and, and bringing you know, Trump voters and, and, and Democrat voters together, uh, you know, I think we're talking about people here, many of them, and I'm not saying that all Trump voters are, are, are racist necessarily, but many of them are. Uh, and I don't, I think it's a, it's a bit of a slap in the face of the people who are suffering from far-right politics and have been suffering from far-right politics for decades now because the mainstream has done absolutely nothing to combat them. And in fact, has, has normalized these politics. You know, you could think again about the US and Obama and, 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 and immigration policy there, but you could think about France and, and the debates and uh, the debates on the hijab and policies that have been put in place, banning the hijab, stigmatizing Muslim communities, um, the, the politics that have been put in place against refugees, against immigration and so on. So I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of a, for the mainstream to answer for when it comes to the mainstreaming of the far right. And that reconciliation to me is incredibly worrying because it's it's hollow. I don't think you can reconcile, you know, left-wing voters with far-right voters without normalizing the far right. Um, and so, so that's problematic. When, when Macron talks about, you know, reaching out and all of that and understanding the task ahead for him, I, you know, I don't want to be cynical, but, but I can't help it, to be honest, when I look at his record. Uh, you know, I'm sure he will make some like the right noise in the in the next couple of weeks until um, or in the next few weeks until the uh, parliamentary elections and pretend that he will care about the environment, pretend that he will care about the you know cost of living crisis. But, uh, you know, seeing what he's been doing in the past five years and, and what he has in um, what, he, what he wants to do in the next five as well, according to his program. Uh, I can't imagine it will not be another turn to the right. And I can imagine that he will keep hyping the far right because the far right, of course, is a useful diversion. Uh, because he'd rather be facing the far right than actually, you know, discussing issues of cost of living, um, the environment, all of these kind of things where he has absolutely no answer uh, that, that actually are suitable and, and, and that, would, that would satisfy the French uh, population as a whole. These kind of dynamics in which, to some extent, the preferred enemy of liberalism is the far right because it allows it to it allows it not to address the crisis of the cost of living it allows it not to address the kind of the underlying you know problems of, of french society or society more broadly um these these dynamics are kind of central to your book reactionary democracy um and I, I got I got a quote from the introduction I want to kind of read to you and then have you it's always kind of clarify. It requires a certain kind of like cashing out into, into some concrete things and I would like to you know, see what those concrete things are so the quote is, um, democracy is not necessarily progressive and will only be so if we make it. What we call reactionary democracy, the title of the book, is the deployment of the concept of democracy and its central understanding of power, brackets, kratos, being held by the people, brackets, demos, for reactionary ends. So my question here is like, what is a reactionary end? Because at the very, very end of the book, and actually the last 
line of the book describes reactionary ends as essentially kind of anything that opposes the the, the progress of of justice, right? Uh, the the elimination of social disadvantage and so on in forms of inequality. Um, so that's a very capacious, in some ways, definition of reactionary. So I have two questions about that. One is: Is that the definition of reactionary you think is is useful? And the second is kind of strategic definition. It's like, what does that allow us to see that we wouldn't otherwise see if we had an idea of the far right, for example, as kind of exceptional or like in some ways like weird with relation to the rest of politics? Well, I think I think we did. We wanted not to be too prescriptive in a way about about, about what is meant because I think you know the work that Aaron and I have been doing for 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 years now has been really focused on the far right and, and has predominantly been focused on racism. But the far right and, and reactionary politics is not just racism and it's not just the far right. It's a lot bigger than that in a way. And we didn't necessarily want to, I mean, we wanted to, you know, we didn't want to claim that we were experts in, in, in for example, sexism, transphobia, all of these kind of other forms of oppression that the far right and reactionary politics build on in a way, but we didn't want to hide them either. So in a way, we left space for that for other experts to kind of, you know, and we try to share their work, obviously, in our in our book. So reactionary, demo, reactionary democracy and reaction and reactionary politics is far broader than the far right. And that's what we try to kind of get across in the book in a way, is that actually, you know, the, the liberalism that is portrayed as a bulwark today against far-right politics and reactionary politics. In fact, from our point of view, they're two sides of the same coin. Uh, and liberalism is only allowed, and, and, and we can talk about what I mean by liberalism in a second, or what we mean by liberalism with, with Aaron in a second as well, because obviously there's different definitions of liberalism, right? There's liberalism as an ideal and liberalism in practice, for example, and liberalism in practice in the 21st century in, in kind of uh, the global north. Uh, and, and all of these kind of mean different things. But here, let's talk about kind of liberalism as a kind of hegemonic understanding when people hear the word liberalism and, and the way it is bandied about. And if you think about, you know, um, about, about the US, the UK, France, various other countries where quite often it's like, well, you know, the liberal mainstream uh, or liberal democracy is, uh, is the defense, the bulwark against the far right. And what we argue is that, well, actually, it's a lot more complicated than that. If you look at the history of liberalism, it has not always been on the right side of history when it comes to reactionary politics, you know. And in fact, quite often, reactionary politics that were core to early liberalism were kind of removed, not because liberalism rea realized that they were not good, but because other movements on the left generally fought really hard to make sure that liberalism evolved. And that's one of the great strengths of liberalism, right? And that's what Lozodo talks about in particular in his book uh, on liberalism, which is, which is really, uh, I think, really challenging is he says that the great strength of liberalism is this flexibility. The fact that liberalism can in a way move to, you know, can, can absorb reactionary politics and it can also reject them at the same time and still remains in power by pretending that it always believed that to some extent. And I know I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing here liberalism, right? But it's, it's obviously for the sake of kind of um, trying to explain it uh, in, in a few minutes. So what we really wanted to do with this book, in a way, was moving away from the research that we had been doing, even though we'd always been interested in the mainstream uh, and the way the mainstream reacts to far-right politics, what we wanted to make sure that we did in this book was actually to shift the focus away from the far-right onto the mainstream and the role that mainstream politics play and, and how the far-right can act as a diversion uh, and as almost a self-righteous positioning for the mainstream to be like, well, we might be pushing reactionary politics with sexism, racism, transphobia, and all these things, but surely we can't be far right because we're against the far right. At least, you know, that's what we say. And this is exactly what Macron 
has done, right? And and what has been happening in France uh, for 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 again decades, for at least you know twenty years, and we could even say more. This idea that, well, you know, we can't be Islamophobic because there's Zemmour. You know, I can't be racist because there's Le Pen, right? Uh, and so just by justifying that, you know, I need to be kept in power because it's either me or Le Pen, right? Uh, and it's like, surely that's not the definition of democracy. And that's what we call to some extent the reactionary democracy, the idea that nowadays the choices that we're given quite often are negative choices, which is the choice between the least worst with, with both alternatives, uh, you know, actually pushing uh, politics that are oppressive and based on, on, on kind of the hegemonic forms of oppressions that we've had for centuries, whether it is, well, you know, it's like, um, you know, white patriarchy really and, and white patriarchal ca- uh, capitalism, I guess you could call it. I've definitely fallen into this this trap myself at times. I remember in a reading group that we did for the podcast um, with some people, I said at one point, yeah, Nick Fuentes, not not actually that racist because the person we were comparing them to was Atomwaffen, who are a neo-Nazi group. And I was like, okay, well, because there's something much more extreme, you know, than, than Nick Fuentes, therefore Nick Fuentes is somehow, you know, kind of normalized in some sense. I mean, this is a problem that, that I think lots of anti-fascists fall into, at least, at least I do. Maybe a little doubt, maybe. Oh, and, and, and we have as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, we have as well as, you know, we're not, we're not being self-righteous in our, you know, like our, our book is, is, is very much a reflection of our practice as well, you know, and, and, and the fact that we've dedicated, you know, years of our, of, our, of our research careers and activism, you know, focusing on the far right. But, but we felt that we kind of were missing a bigger picture in a way. And I'm not saying, you know, I mean, the thing that, that as, as well we're not saying is that we, we're not saying that we shouldn't focus on the far right, the hardcore racist, the extreme right, all of these kind of things. Of course we should, and we should combat them. But I think we can't solely combat them. I think we can't let the kind of more liberal racism of the hook to some extent, because I think we, we, we think they are linked. And we think that you, if you combat one without the other, you're kind of missing the picture in a way and, and you're missing the bigger picture. We, we, we've spoken about this in the podcast and in our books too, about how oftentimes anti-fascism in the past has been policing the boundaries between what is acceptable politics and what is unacceptable politics and like not letting the unacceptable politics come into the acceptable politics. And obviously... We've also spoken as a view about how a lot of these things interact with each other anyway. There's no boundary, really, and there never has been. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fuzzy borders are important, right? I mean, I think that's the thing as well. We, t- we tend to think, when, particularly when we think about far-right politics, and, you know, it, it, it takes us back to the work of Alana Lentin as well with frozen racism to some extent, you know, and, and, and more broadly, like I think we could talk about a frozen far right to some extent. This idea that when we think about the far right, when we think about racism, we think about something that's in the past, that's incredibly caricatural, that's like, you know, biological racism, Hitler, neo-Nazis, people with kind of swastika tattooed on their, on their chests and so on and so forth. And, and what we, again, we try to do, and many of us have, have done as well, is kind of challenge again this kind of simplification of, of, of history and politics in a way into two very distinct camps, camps by showing that actually people can move between these camps. And it's not just about people as well. I mean, quite often I've been asked, you know, is Trump far right? I don't care whether Trump is far right. Who cares whether as an individual is far right or not? What matters is the ideas that he's putting into the mainstream, you know, and some of the ideas that he's putting into the mainstream and legitimizing as as a candidate or as a president are far right. And that's what matters. Whether he is or not, I don't know, I'm not in his head. And to be honest, it doesn't matter, right? What matters to me is, again, this kind of the way ideas travel and the fact that there's no clear boundaries between what is the far right and what is not and what is the righteous center and what is the unacceptable kind of uh, far right. And I think, you know, the porous borders here are very important. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we try and talk about this in our, um, I think we, we have a very slightly, um, I mean, the book is now published, so I'm now going to critique it. Um, yeah. Um, 
in, 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 in our book on, on ecofascism, we talk about the far right as being in some ways mediated by public, access, uh, public acceptability. Um, so the far right is simply the collection of tactics essential for the reproduction of society that liberalism cannot admit to. So um, you know, liberalism uh, in the 20th century is, is uh, coated in blood, right, in, in, in lots of ways. Um, but nevertheless, it, it obscures this, uh, this brutality um, and it describes it as kind of extraneous or, or far right. Uh, and in some sense, there's a kind of a, um, I think our book is, is too, doesn't put enough pressure on the idea that there is a kind of a, a public sphere that mediates the question of acceptability, doesn't look enough about what that question of mediation is um, and you in your book have a lot of talk, things to say about mainstreaming like what does it mean for ideas to flow back towards the mainstream so i wonder if you could just kind of tell us like about that process like what are the key components of that mainstreaming process how does it happen and you know um perhaps even what can be done to uh, to reverse it i don't know if that's a, it's a kind of within uh, the scope of the interview or something but yeah yeah, I mean, that's a huge question. What can be done? But I, I mean, I can give you my two yes. cents, right? But the, the process of mainstreaming to me, uh, interestingly, it's always been key to, the, to, what, to what has brought me to academia as well, because it's something that, you know, I mean, it was, it was in the title of my first book. But interestingly enough, it's not something that I really fleshed out in my first book as a, as a kind of like framework or, you know, my first book talked about it. And, and uh, my first book was on Australia and, and France and, and, and how kind of far right politics have been mainstreamed. But I I don't think I succeeded then in, in kind of creating a framework that was easily um, applicable and, and, and allowed us to understand all the kind of um, ways mainstreaming takes place. And this is something that, that we've developed a lot. And I think this is something we try to develop in reactionary democracy with our own. And since then, we've developed it further with, with Katie Brown as well, who's uh, currently doing a PhD uh, at the University of Bath. Uh, and, and her work has, has taken our work on mainstreaming, um, you know, a million miles uh, further. So, so I mean, you know, look, look, look for it when it uh, gets published soon, because I think it's going to be really changing things on, on, on these issues. On these issues, and we, we recently published an article on this, which, as I said, she's she's taken further even by now. But, but in the article, what we try to do is create a heuristic framework to understand uh, mainstreaming. So try to create a framework where you could apply the concept of mainstreaming to different contexts. And of course, context matters, right? You know, mainstreaming in France is not the same as mainstreaming in the UK, in Hungary, or or, or in the US. But we try to find a way that actually people could 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 understand mainstreaming in a more nuanced way. And for us, what we've looked at is we try to go beyond electoral politics, which has become increasingly the end all of politics. When we talk about politics, we talk about electoral politics, really. And what we feel is that this is really, again, uh, letting of the hook, the more kind of um, the more hidden forms of, of racism and of reactionary politics that are seeping into the mainstream. So what we said in what we say in that article is that we must take into account discourse. It's not because a country doesn't have a strong far right party, or it's not because the far right is defeated uh, at the polls that far right politics cannot be mainstream. So we need to look at discourse, and we also need to look at mediation. And you know, as you were saying, this is something that I think. I missed in my in my early work this process of mediation. We tend to think of the far right, and you know you, you don't have to go very far there. Just look at, at a newspaper coverage or at media coverage of a far right. It's generally done in a bottom up manner. The people are revolting. They have legitimate grievances. They're angry. Blah blah blah. Pop, and then populists come at, come in and they just you know like take that anger and turn it into some kind of political movement. It's very often bottom up. What we say in our article is that we need to pay attention. It can be bottom up, but we need to pay attention of top down movements. This is 
This is incredibly obvious. Anyone who studied a little bit of politics or paid attention to politics and the media would know that you know, none of us know the world around us perfectly, right? We haven't experienced it. We have to rely on what, you know, Anderson, years and years ago, Benedict Anderson was calling imagined communities, you know, anything that's beyond really our network of, of close friends and the people living around us. We don't really know what they experience. So we have to rely on mediate, mediatory effects, right? And mediatory effects come from a variety of places. You know, it could be it could be your family. It used to be religious institutions. It used to be trade unions. It used to be, um, you know, workplaces. But of course, increasingly in the 20th century and 21st century, still the media plays a key part, and social media to some extent. But the legacy media still plays a key part in shaping the agenda, in what we know about the world, what we focus on, and so on and so forth. It doesn't mean that we're sheep, that we're lemmings, and that we follow whatever the media tells us. But it tells us what the kind of issues we should think about when we go to the ballot box are. And like, but this is something that I'm really working on at the moment, this mediatory effect, because, because it matters quite often, far-right politics are legitimized by people in positions of power, whether it is the media, whether it is politicians, and to some extent academics, people who have access to shaping public discourse. These people tend to legitimize far-right politics by saying, well, that's what the people want. We may disagree as liberal people. I do not like, I think immigration is great, but we have to kind of crack down because that's what the people quite the most want, right? What I argue in an article recently is that this is very much a top-down process of mediation because it depends what questions you ask people. And, and also when you ask people questions about what concerns them the most, where did they find that information that makes them feel that immigration, for example, is their biggest concern? And what I do in, in, that, in that recent article, uh, which I hope will be published soon, and, and, and we talk about it a little bit in the book, but I push it further in that article, is, is looking at a particular survey that asks people two questions. One is, according to you, what are the two biggest issues facing your country at the moment? And according to you, what are the two biggest issues you are facing at the moment, right? So the same people ask these two questions. When it's about your country, immigration is very high. When it's about you personally, no one cares about immigration. I said, why is that? Why is it that the same people have such a dissonance between what we think about their country and what they think about their day-to-day -day lives. Well, it's the mediatory effect, right? The fact that when we think about their country, they do not experience their country. They experience it through a mediation. And this mediation process is necessary. I'm not saying it's necessarily bad, right? If we want to think beyond themselves and if we want to think as, as a global kind of community or even as a national community, we need that mediatory process. But what that means is that that mediatory process needs to be scrutinized far better than it is. And look, what I'm going to say now is not original at all. We do not have a media that is worthy of democracy at the moment. You know, it's controlled by, by interests that are anti-democratic quite often, that are into very few hands, that are incredibly elitist in the background of the journalists that we have in the UK, for example. Uh, and, and, and all of this, you know, shouldn't surprise any more anyone. But the point is that this is incredibly bad when you rely on the media, for example, for these mediatory effects, for what people know about the world around them and, and how they react to the world around them. So what is to be done with the mainstreaming? Well, the actors who have access to public discourse need to take their responsibility far more seriously. You know, and that means you and I as well, right? You know, you have your podcast, you're writing books, you know, so do I. Of course, we don't have the power that Trump has or that the New York Times has, but we do still have a certain amount of power. And I think we need to take that power far more seriously. And I'm not saying that the three of us will change, will change the world on that, right? But we I think will. we need to push for this. We will, right? Okay, we will. Yeah, <laughs> do, do you think it's possible to um, take some of these discourses about the people and what the people think and, and use them for more liberatory ends? I mean, I'm thinking 
Okay, I'm thinking of, of the the recent policy of, of, of sending asylum seekers to Rwanda and, and housing them there. And there was a quote from Boris Johnson who said, of course, a very vocal minority will be against this, but the vast majority will, will think this is a good thing ultimately. And yet it, it didn't seem to have the same purchase, you know, all the little vox pops you get on the radio that I was listening to. Even the people who were in favour were feeling very ambivalent. They couldn't find someone who was very gung-ho for this policy. And I wondered how we like kind of undercut these kind of, you know, silent majority narratives that are have been so effective. Yeah, that, that's a great question, and and it's a difficult one. I, like I think I think in the short term and strategically, I think you can I think you can harness the concept of the people that you know the people support our ideas rather than the reactionary ones, for example. Although I think it's difficult when you have a media ecosystem like like the one we have in the UK, for example, and, and in many other kind of uh, democracies, because of course there's a lot more power. You know, yeah, we you know three of us could create our own newspaper, but you know if we don't have the money to back it up, who's going to read it, right? Uh, and when you have like billionaires on the other hand who then can, you know, uh, give it for free at uh, at the supermarket, then yeah, you know, that that makes a difference. Or when you have Elon Musk who can buy Twitter like this, um, you know, again that makes a difference. So I think there is a possibility, but I think I think the left also needs to kind of start thinking, and that's a long-term project, right? But that's where the far right has been very, that's what the far right has been very successful at in a way, is thinking in the long term, you know, in the 70s when the far right was in the doldrums, when, you know, they were really still suffering from the stigma of the Second World War. And, you know, Jean-Marie Le Pen was polling 0.2% or something like that, you know, or the, the lack of Jean-Marie Le Pen were polling, polling very low. What they decided to do, some of them, and intellectuals on the far right, was to actually, you know, sit down and think about a more counter-hegemonic kind of way forward. And, and they borrowed directly from Antonio Gramsci, right? You know, like before we gain political power, uh, we need to gain cultural power. And I think that's what the left needs to do. And I think it's difficult, of course, right now, because there are so many pressing issues, so many issues of life and death that are taking place right now, you know, the, the environmental crisis. I mean, you know, you guys have written about ecofascism, for example, you know, this is something that's very pressing because if the left doesn't get their act together now, the far right will, right? And, uh, and so this, that's a really kind of, key moments and, and there's not many other crises and the left, you know, we there's so much reaction that we need to fight back, but that prevents us from actually thinking about politics in a more emancipatory way. And that's what I'd like to look at in my in my future work in a way is how we can go beyond reaction. Because of course the right is reactionary, but the left has been reactionary in one sense as well, which is we're only reacting to the right at the moment. We're not offering actually anything that is positive or that is counter-hegemonic or that is beyond the current hegemony that we have. And that question of them, to go back, sorry, that was a bit of a, of a, of a digression, but, but there's a point to it because I think we need to be careful with creating peoples based on the current liberal hegemony because that remains people who are counted and by counting people, we expose ourselves to having people counted against us and there will be more. And therefore, these people will have a legitimacy because that the rules of the games we are ourselves playing with. So I think we need to move beyond this kind of electoral um, forms of democracy in a way which are majoritarian based on public opinion, all of these kind of things, and move towards more emancipatory forms of democracy that actually go beyond that, that actually, you know, give give people power back to some extent. And, and, and that power doesn't have to be counted. What's fascinating about democracy as well is an electoral democracy uh, is that you know elections for a very long time were, were thought of as reactionary, as counter-democratic. Um, and yet we've totally accepted them, even though all they've been used for 
has been to actually consolidate power in the hands of a few, which leads us to the oligarchies we live in now that are again, you know, couched in democratic terms. So yeah, what, what, what we call reactionary democracy really we are in. You've written, written the, I think, the conclusion to the book. Uh, we must return to an uncountable understanding of the demos in which politics are for all or not at all. Um, and I thought, oh, cantor or something. Uh, but I don't know what uncountable means in this context. I know what it means in maths, but I don't know what it means here. <laughs> give, give, give me some, give me a kind of a, a sense of like what, what we're supposed to do with this this term. Like what is an uncountable demos? Uh, the demos, I should say for people who don't know, uh, is like a, a term that's from ancient Greek, I think, that is used to describe a kind of a, um, not exactly a people, but like a, a people that is participating in a kind of a democratic process, right? It's the root of the word democracy. It's the, the rule of the people in some sense, but but it it's often used to describe a, a more like contested people than a kind of homogenous people. That's a very bad summary. I don't read ancient Greek <laughs> and I haven't read Plato. So, you know, uh, but yeah, give us an understanding of what an uncountable understanding of the demos would be. Yeah, I mean, but, no, that was a good, like, that was a good, uh, good definition. Yeah, I mean, demos kratos, you know, it's it's democracy, right? Like what 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 this term that we all think we know and we all use all the time as if it was this kind of like easily identifiable good, even though there's lots of difference of democracies, right? But if you go back to democracy as demos kratos, power people, and, and a particular kind of uncountable people, I think I think it can open up a lot of kind of avenues. Um, the uncountable. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Kentor because actually, to some extent, it does it does speak to to, to mathematics and to and to certain kind of mathematical traditions in philosophy. Uh, and and here I'm going to speak more more for myself and for Aaron because uh, because it, it might not necessarily. I mean, I think we might agree in the, in the broader trends, but, but are we going to get? Are we going to get the first mention of Badiou on the on the podcast? And yeah, well, there you go. It's coming. There you go. It, it is. It is Badiou. <laughs> it is Badiou. Uh, and I think I'm more I'm more of a Badiou fan than than Aaron is. So I don't want, I don't want us to be you know cited uh, to be put both both together. But yeah, no, it is Badiou. I mean, to me, Badiou has been incredibly formative in my PhD during my PhD. Not because I necessarily used him, but uh, I was lucky enough. Or unlucky. I mean, it depends what you think of Badiou, right? But I was lucky enough, <laughs> from my point of view, uh, to to I've been doing my PhD with uh, with people who were working on Badiou and who were big Badiouians and still are, uh, and and it, it was um, yeah, it was life life changing for me because it, it made me think about democracy in a very different manner. And and Badiou mixed with uh, Jacques Rancière as well, and and Ben Badiou's as well. I mean, you know, you could bring in Wendy Brown and. Uh, and, and others has really kind of opened my mind to, to, to kind of like challenging preconceptions that I had about democracy, because I used to think of democracy, you know, I mean, the first time I voted was in 2002 when Jean-Marie Le Pen gets to the second round. And, you know, to me, this was like, oh, my God, this is democracy. I need to go and demonstrate and all of that. And actually, you know, reading Badiou and Rancière in the aftermath of the 2002 election in France was really awakening because the way they talked about democracy was like, my God, yes, this is this is so much more exciting than me voting for either the center-left party or the center-right party. And, and the way they talk about it, they talk about it very differently. Uh, and and they, are, they each have their strengths. And I disagree with some of what they say as well at the same time. And I, and I certainly bastardize their, their theories as well. You know, I haven't read the whole of being an event. I tried uh, and I didn't. Uh, I don't have any training in said theory either. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but I, I mean, I, I did go to reading groups and it was like, it was fascinating to see people like with inviting mathematicians to try and understand it. But but this uncountable democracy, I think, you know, that can be understood in different ways. And, you know, other people have written about it as well, is, is, is the idea that democracy shouldn't be a question of counting 100 people. And if 51% choose, or 51 out of these 100 people choose one thing, then that's what goes. 
you know, we could think of democracy as something very different. For Francia, for example, democracy could be the drawing of a lot. You know, the fact that the people who should be in power should first and foremost be the people who don't want to be in power. Therefore, elections should be put off the table because the only people who run in elections are the people who want power, right? So if you have the drawing of a lot, well, you will have just random people. Um, and Badiou pushes it further to some extent. And, you know, he, for him, like, I mean, and, it, and it's the same to some extent for Rancière when he talks about the, the police and politics. For Rancière, the police is what's happening with elections, you know, the perpetuation of the same power and all of that. Politics is when you break away from that, when the, the people who have no part become, become part of it. And for Badiou, it's when you have the event. And for Badiou, you know, politics is really for all or not at all. And what you, what, democracy is for all or not at all. And it, it's, it's the moment when something is good for everyone and doesn't leave anyone out. That's when you would have real emancipatory democratic, democratic politics, uh, which is, of course, you know, very abstract. And I'm not saying that it's easy to, you know, I'm not saying that Mélenchon should put that in his, uh, you know, in his program or that, or that Starmer should, should pick it up as, and put it as his first, uh, first kind of um, uh, reform. But, but I think for the left that is a bit more serious about emancipatory futures, we need to rethink democracy because I don't think we, we can win fully uh, in, in the current understanding that we have of democracy. And I think reopening these avenues of thinking beyond hegemony are, are very important. And we failed at that because I think we've, we've been under pressure, right? And again, I'm not being self-righteous. I have as well failed at that. But I think we really need to make an effort to, of course, react to reaction. We can't let the people at the sharp end suffer. And we need to fight back right here, right now. But we also need to think about broader strategies and strategies that actually are not just reactive, but are, are proper actions. I do think that uh, the Corbyn movement should have had a position on uh, Zemelo Frankel set theory with uh, the axiom of choice as a, as a component. Sorry, it's a joke for like five people. Uh, sorry, go on. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Um, going back to anti-fascism and anti-racism, because um, for a long time, I had this uh, conception of the two is completely separate. There were separate politics addressing two separate things. And I think I've I've come to think of I've come to disagree with that quite a lot. How can we start to bring together a politics of anti-fascism that poses the far right and poses these quite extreme and quite small um, actors in society? And how do we link that into broader movements of anti-racism, for example, PLM or, or struggles against immigration raids and borders? It's, it's something I've been thinking about for a while and I haven't really got a good answer about how these things can be meshed together, aside from anti-fascism is playing a necessarily junior role, we say this in our book, to, anti, to broader anti-racism? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. And I've, I've gone through exactly the kind of same, same struggles and same, same kind of questions and reflections. And, you know, there's no, there's no easy answer. But I think intersectionality is, is really, really important here. Um, and I think the anti-fascist movement has struggled with that uh, quite often, uh, failing to actually broaden it up to, to kind of uh, reflections about about various forms of oppression, and I think we need to bring the, the struggle against all forms of oppressions together. And I think that's what anti-fascism, at the end of the day, should be about, right? Um, should, anti-fascism should be a, a big umbrella. And I don't think you can be an anti-fascist but be transphobic, for, for example. I don't think you can be anti-fascist and be and be um, tiptoeing around issues of race or gender and and so on. So I think you know. This, this is the way I would understand anti-fascism. This is not the way I've always understood anti-fascism. Not because because I thought that sexism was okay or anything like that. Obviously, I still thought it wasn't. But I hadn't reflected upon my positionality as an anti-fascist. Um, and I think this is something that maybe 
being French and having lived abroad has allowed me to reflect upon maybe more than I would have if I had stayed in France that whole time because I realized that my anti-fascism and my anti-racism in France when I was in French when I was uh, when I was in France uh, in my kind of teenage years and, and, and even early 20s uh, was very mistaken you know I had, I had very um, well I had, I had very hegemonic uh, a, a very hegemonic understanding of anti-racism. And, you know, in France, anti-racism is this kind of colorblind form of uh, anti-racism, this idea that, you know, universalism is great and France is at the core of that and blah, 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 and we don't see color. Um, and, and it took me a while to kind of work through that. And I was incredibly lucky to, to again, meet the right people, read the right things uh, that allowed me to kind of think beyond that. But it's uh, I'm, <laughs> it's funny because, like, my my understanding of racism and anti-racism now is is i think fairly mainstream even though i mean you know probably uh you know i i, I would be closer to kind of critical race theory and things like that but in academia it's still fairly mainstream for the people who work on racism we agree that racism is something that evolves something that didn't kind of stop in the in 1945 like basic stuff but in france it still kind of comes comes out as quite shocking <laughs> people still react to that um and due to the idea that you know france remains a racist country systemic systematically that, that islamophobia is about racism uh, and not about religion and, and and all of this kind of thing so i think you know that from my point of view sorry i digressed again but uh, yeah anti-fascism to me needs to be intersectional uh, it, it it has to be otherwise it cannot be anti-fascist because because that's what fascism is also about it's about targeting all these bias um various communities and various forms of, of politics and identity. And I think we, we cannot cherry pick in a way. And that's why we need to engage more broadly as well, because we need to challenge our own position uh, in the struggle. I think that's, that's, that those are really salient points. And I want to kind of match them up perhaps with something you said earlier about the needs to offer a sort of positive other vision for that is so that it's not that there is liberalism and then the alternative is the far right, right? There's some sort of other um, left vision of the future. Um, and yet the, the, the way you were describing it there is, is anti-racism is a kind of critique of universalism, a kind of critique of the presumption of a, an inclusive universalism, which has often uh, been you know, a major part of the French uh, tradition about how it conceives itself as a nation, of course. What is the relationship of anti-racism or a positive future to universalism? That's a vast question sorry <laughs> like what, what, what is the what is the um you didn't come on here to have the easy questions i guess but um you know what what is the relationship of, of that of that of that anti-racism of that positive vision of the future to like a, the idea of a universal humanity or something like that yeah that's a huge question and that's again like yeah, <laughs> you're really throwing at me a lot of kind of existential question that, sorry, that sorry, I've been, like, struggling struggling with personally as well for years and um it's tricky. I think, you know, it's, universalism is, is one of these words that has been so tainted to some extent that, that it is difficult to reclaim because obviously there's, there's, there's the abstract, it's a bit like liberalism, there's the abstract kind of, or, or free speech, you know, at, at the moment. The, in, in abstract, it's beautiful, you know, it's like, wow, that's great. Yeah, we, all, we can all live together as one human race and blah, blah, blah. But of course, in practice, you know, universalism was used by the French to kind of like exploit, kill, uh, you know, um, uh, subjugate people and so on and so forth, right? So it's hard to kind of remove it. So I think, I, and some colleagues have tried to reclaim universalism. Some colleagues in France in particular who are also kind of like taking taking their cue from, from critical race theory and, 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 and other emancipatory movements. I've tried to kind of reclaim the concept of, of universalism, but I... 
I'm not convinced that's the word we should, or what's the term we should be trying to reclaim. It's always tricky in a way because I think you don't want to leave concepts, particularly potentially cons- potentially po- pro- progressive and positive concepts, or that have a kind of potentially progressive understanding in the, in, the, in the wider society. You don't want to leave them to the to the right, and you don't want to leave them to to the, to the reactionaries in a way. The, the way you know, as happened with free speech, for example, or even laicity in French secularism. Uh, but I think reclaiming them as as our own, as the left, I don't know how how useful it is. I mean, I've I've been struggling with the concept of democracy in in a similar manner, to be honest. Whether we should try and reclaim democracy, uh, or whether we should just try and find something else. And I think I think democracy, from my point of view, is maybe a more um, a, a better way forward as as a term that brings us all together to some extent, which to some extent would tap into similar ideas of universalism. But universalism brings to me maybe too much of a kind of uh, or is too much intricated in, in in the kind of colonization process in France in particular and that and that deeply uh, racist uh, system uh, that, that was put in place and is still to some extent. Uh, I think coloring a lot of the of, of the way French people see themselves and French politicians in particular see France and present France and 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 put put France uh, to children through you know through uh, through education and so on and so forth. So I think I think democracy to me is the word. If there's a word we should try and reclaim, that would be democracy. I think and and push it way beyond what it means today. There's a kind of a sense when we broaden out our concepts of reaction, where we broaden out our concepts of, of racism to include liberal racism, illiberal racism, and so on, that there is a sense that like everything is bad and that nothing else, uh, there's only kind of the things that are bad, which is everything. And then there's a kind of a critique of that things that are bad. And the only thing left to do, or the only thing to do is a, as, a, as a person, as a, a kind of thing that is you know struggling to, to be alive uh, is to simply make that critique again, 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 and maybe, you know, I don't know how optimistic you are, but like maybe fail to 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 make that critique, maybe fail to sustain that critique. Um, is that one of the dangers of broadening out a concept of reaction, such that it seems like you know it contains the whole world as a kind of a, an opponent to to a, a kind of principle of of critique? Because I think about this sometimes when I'm in my in the shop, <laughs> I go into the shop and I'm like, oh, no one in this shop is a is a like a, <laughs> is, is is like a, a racist. It's okay that the people I'm talking about, the people I think about lots of my lots of my time are are like quite marginal in society in lots of ways. And so I wonder if there's a kind of danger of like falling into despair or falling into hopelessness that comes with this broadening out of the concept. There is, but I think I think there are ways around that though. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, that, that's a great question as well. I mean, one of the things that I think is important is always linking our fight against reaction to our fight against power, right? Um, so I'm not saying that we should let individual racist, sexist, transphobes of the hook either. They can be targeted, but I think we should always, like the more the broader kind of political struggle that we want to, to, to wage is against power, right? And I think that's where we should kind of focus our attention on, um, you know, the, the kind of the, the people who have power, but also the kind of power relationships that are, that are taking place around that kind of naturalize certain forms of oppression, certain forms of exclusion. Um, I don't think, I mean, look, it is, it is a difficult struggle and it is a struggle that. You know, I mean, Rancière says, right, that, I mean, both Rancière and Badiou, to go back to them again, you know, the, for them, the, the end goal is equality, which they, they define slightly differently, obviously. Um, but what, what I quite like with Rancière is that Rancière says that, you know, equality is not 
is not is not it's almost not an end goal, right? But it's a starting point. And to some extent that links to Badu in a way. Badu says that actually you don't reach equality, you start with equality. We we are all equal. Um, and it's an empty equality to some extent, you know. The, the only thing that makes us equal is that we're here, uh, right? And and and, and we have consciousness and Again, I'm bastardizing both their thoughts, right? But uh, it's it's Friday afternoon, so, so I can be excused. And also, you know, it's it's also very complicated, too complicated for me. But anyway, but what I think is, is interesting in both of their of their um, of their philosophies is that the that you can find joy in the struggle. That struggle doesn't have to be negative. And of course, we are on the losing end, and we probably will be for a long time, right? But we need to be ready, and we need we need to kind of have faith in our project and. And I think the, you know, the, the concept of faith is an interesting one as well, and something that I've been, you know, toying with as well, because obviously the concept of faith flies in the face of mathematics, uh, flies in the faith of, of, you know, French, French universalism and secularism and all of these kind of things. But, but what's interesting in, in, in Badiou is that he really talks about, you know, the kind of leap of faith and the fact that when an event happens, you don't know what's going to happen, you know, and he, he talks, for example, about the, the French Revolution and about, uh, and he, he talks about the kind of real French Revolution, the one that happens from 1792, not the 1789 one, the 1792 one, which, you know, leads to the terror and when, where these people really want, want a radical change. And they just have that leap of faith and they're like, well, there's no going back. There's no, you know, they just throw themselves and they don't know what's going to happen. That we're just going hundred uh, percent, and I think you know this is this is fascinating, and that's why I think we, even though it's difficult, and even though it can be tiring, and even though it can seem endless, I don't think we can. I think the thing that we really need to avoid is cherry pick. We cannot cherry pick our battles. We cannot cherry pick um, the way the French left, for example, has when they kind of decided to go against uh, sexism, but for racism with the hijab debate. You know, when they fell for that right wing trick of saying like, well, you know, either you're uh, for the ban on the hijab, which means that you're against sexism, or you're against the ban on the hijab, which means that you know you're against racism. Uh, and and as Christine Delphi said very clearly, it's like well, you have to be against both. You know, you cannot be you know uh, a racist anti-sexist or or or, uh, or an anti-racist sexist, right? So I think I think we cannot. We must always keep in mind that we need that discipline almost really, which is like we need to fight against all forms of oppressions. And that's why I think intersectionality is incredibly important here. Um, and, 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 and that has to be part of a, of a, of any emancipatory struggle. Um, if we, if we believe in emancipatory struggles for, for everyone and not for just certain kinds of people. I think it's a great place to end it. Thank you very much. That was, uh, really wonderful. Come back on the podcast when you, uh, when you publish this this other article about the uh, the dimension of mainstreaming, I'd, I'd like to kind of talk about that into into more um, some more detail. You can see our, is that our book behind you <laughs> on the off table to your left, just to your left behind you. Oh, yeah, it's a book. Yeah, actually, I, I didn't even do it on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh wow, we didn't even notice. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. No, no, no. We 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 uh, we're doing a reading group on it actually. So uh, yeah. Oh, oh wow. God. Oh my God! You must tell us how uh, how debt how profoundly it gets panned. Yeah, no, it's it's been interesting. It's been lots of different people as well from different like not not just far right experts as well. So it's been yeah, it's been quite interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, it's it, like yeah, it's so worrying to be honest. The rise of ecofascism, and I'm just so worried that they will um, like that the, the yeah the climate crisis is going to be hijacked by them. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Cool. Uh, All right. See you soon. Twelve rules. Yeah,